Welcome to episode 29. Today we'll be covering the 1971 May Day protests, as well as an interview featuring Lawrence Roberts, which I'm very excited about. And this is the first episode we've done sort of on the 60s, 70s era, which was a divisive time, to say the least, in the country, because I think you had so much going on. And it's also in a unique time because I think there are many parallels to what has gone on in the 60s and 70s and what is going on now. I mean, I think that if you look at the 60s, there was the Vietnam War, there was the Civil Rights Movement, there was the Labor Movement, there was the Hippie Movement, there were all these sort of forces going on at the time that eventually culminated with the 1971 May Day protest. But I think if you look today... Maybe not Vietnam, but there's a global pandemic. There's this much wider movement to kind of try and address systematic racism and civil rights. So it's an interesting time to do this episode. And I think you see it too, because you see the Nixon administration and Trump administration, you see sort of the approach that they're taking towards these movements, which is to try and use it to their political benefit. I don't know if we've ever seen a president like Nixon and like Trump. I think they're very different in many ways, but they're sort of similar in the way that they approach social unrest and movements with their law and order rhetoric, which most historians will point to Nixon as kind of the chief architect of that rhetoric and has been kind of a foundation of the Republican Party ever since then. So I think, again, it's an interesting period to say the least. And I'm kind of excited to kind of get outside of kind of military history, which again, is something that I generally do because I'm the most comfortable with. But I think it's interesting to kind of look at kind of the social movement that was going on on the US in the 60s and 70s and try and draw similarities and parallels to what has been going on today. So I hope you kind of enjoyed the interview. We definitely talked about some of those parallels. And hopefully this will encourage you to kind of read about the 60s and 70s. And maybe you can think about it in a different way and maybe give you perspective on, again, Mark Twain always says that history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. Again, there's similarities. It's not the exact same, but I think there are a lot of parallels. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. Hope you enjoyed the episode. On today's episode, we welcome on Lawrence Roberts. He has been an editor of investigative journalism for most of his career. He's worked at ProPublica, The Washington Post, Bloomberg News, and was executive editor of the Huffington Post Investigative Fund. He's been a leader on teams honored with three Pulitzer Prizes. These included the 1991 investigation into how and why the Hubble Space Telescope was launched with a crippling flaw, and at the Post, a series of 2005 stories that exposed corruption among lobbyists and lawmakers, and a 2007 project delving into the exercise of power by Vice President Dick Cheney. His first book is May Day 1971, which we'll be talking about today. So welcome on. Thank you so much, Riley. Glad to be here. In the beginning, what is your favorite subject of either history or journalism to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how do you become interested in the 1971 Bay Day protests? Sure. Well, I've always been especially fascinated by times of intense political division and social change in America and how institutions and leaders of those times resist the change or absorb it or co-opt it. And in those periods, ordinary people are thrust into extraordinary circumstances. When we're in the moment, in a time of momentous events or major social change, it's hard for anyone to see clearly through the fog of their own personal experience. We 
demonize the people we see as villains. We turn the people we admire into saints. And it's only through looking back in historical research that we can really begin to see that people have heroic sides and weaker sides and that everyone is subject to these pressures. And to me, it just seemed that even though the protests over the Vietnam War in the 60s and early 70s were one of the great mass movements in American history, along with civil rights, labor movement, women's movement, it sort of faded in historical memory. And especially faded was this extraordinary situation in Washington in 1971. Many of the people and the forces that were rocking the country throughout the 60s all converged on Washington in this time period. And that just felt like a story that needed to be revived. And what are some of the challenges that you've encountered, whether it was researching this particular book or during your investigative career? One of the biggest challenges, which isn't unique to researching this particular book, is just finding your way through all the different perspectives to produce the best possible version of the truth. When you interview people, we all tend to gild our memories, and even contemporaneous documents like letters and diaries can be misleading. And as a journalist doing history, you need to find your way through that maze, meld all those different perspectives into one cohesive story. That's the biggest sort of obstacle. And to kind of get into the protests. To begin, what was kind of the makeup of these various groups that were converging on Washington, D.C.? Was there coordination between them or was it sort of this convergence of all these different groups with different stakes and different perspectives on whether it was Vietnam or race relations or any of the number of issues going on at the U.S. at the time? Well, the immediate impetus for the 71 protests was President Richard Nixon's expansion of the Vietnam War. The war had been going on for six years, and Nixon ran for president in 68 with a sort of promise to end the war. But instead of ending it, he was expanding it geographically. And in 1970, the year before the period I'm writing about, he had invaded Cambodia, and that set off a national student strike. Campuses exploded. We had the horrible case of civil, the National Guard shooting four students, killing four students at Kent State University in Ohio. And that, now in 1971, he was doing it again, this time into Laos. So that really reignited the whole anti-war movement, which had really been around since almost the beginning of the war in 1965. But in 1971, this loose coalition of anti-war groups started planning what they called the Spring Offensive, which was a series of protests starting in April and going into May to, in some way, be sort of the last best chance to try to end the war. And these included... Quakers, Vietnam veterans, socialists, religious groups, and two large umbrella groups that were called the National Peace Action Coalition and the People's Committee for Peace and Justice. And the finale of this long series of demonstrations was to be the most audacious act yet by the movement, which was a blockade of Washington, D.C. That was called the May Day Action, and the people who were putting it together were called the May Day Tribe. And... In response to this, what kind of measures did either the D.C. police or the Nixon administration take to prepare for the coming protests? Well, Nixon was, this was happening at a time when Nixon was in political danger, right? He was facing a re-election campaign coming up the following year. He was embattled. His public approval rating had dropped to the lowest level of his first term. And on top of that, he had this sort of global strategy that he was trying to carry out, which would remake the Cold War world. The idea was to keep the Soviet Union off balance, 
and to open ties to China, communist China for the first time. And all the strategy sort of depended on him being able to do what he wanted to do in Vietnam and win re-election in 72. So now you have this massive protest coming to DC, which was a threat, political threat to his campaign and to his strategy, because if these demonstrations were successful in igniting enough public opinion against him and against the war, it would undermine his strategy. So uh, he and his men got together and started to hold what I call them these war councils to try to determine the best way to blunt the demonstrations and, in fact, undermine them so that they wouldn't be seen as any kind of political success. And to kind of get back to the protesters and your research, who were some of these people leading these different groups and what were their motivations for being in D.C. and protesting? The leaders of May Day protest, which was the finale, the one that most worried Nixon, included two members of the Chicago 7. And the Chicago 7 was this group of activists who the government had accused of fomenting riots during the 68 Democratic Convention. And the name of these two leaders were Rennie Davis and David Dellinger. And both of them believe that after six years of the anti-war movement protesting the war, the movement needed to escalate its tactics. And they were pushing for this mass act of civil disobedience, something that went beyond parades and marches and picketing and all that. But there were many other leaders too during that whole spring offensive. One of them was John Kerry, who was then the chief spokesman for a group called the Vietnam Veterans Against the War. And that was a very little known group until this protest came about. They were putting together their own separate action in DC that spring. And did these groups come from a particular geographical area in the United States, or did they come from all across the country? It came from all over the country. I mean, in all the spring offensive of 71 brought close to half a million people to D.C. And they came from all 50 states and lots of other, some, even some other countries as well. And did the FBI or the federal government think that the Soviet Union was somehow behind these more left-wing groups and try to undermine these groups through different tactics? Yes. Richard Nixon, like his predecessor, Lyndon Johnson, insisted that there had to be foreign influence behind the anti-war movement, partly because they just couldn't believe that citizens would be opposed to their policies. And they thought that this influence might be coming from Soviet Union, from China, from Cuba, North Vietnam. And both presidents kept ordering the FBI and the CIA to go hunting for some, such ties, such influence. And even when the agents came back with reports saying they could find no evidence of foreign funding or any direct support, Nixon didn't buy it. And he kept pushing for the agencies to keep looking. I mean, certainly many radicals in the what was called the new left at the time took inspiration from foreign revolutionaries, but there was never any evidence that they relied on material support from overseas. It was just some kind of a fantasy, I think, that both presidents couldn't believe that there could be a domestic movement of such breadth without support from abroad. And to kind of get into the protest, did the Vietnam veterans throwing their medals over the fence at the Capitol building sort of kick off the protests? Yeah. The Vietnam Veterans Against the War, as I mentioned, John Kerry's group, was the first group to arrive in D.C. during this spring series of demonstrations called the Spring Offensive. It was the first time Kerry kind of burst onto the national scene. And the vets came. As far as I know, this is the only time that you had a mass of ex-warriors 
protesting a war that was still ongoing in the nation's capital. It was really an extraordinary thing. More than a thousand of them came to town. They set up camp on the National Mall, very close to the Capitol, even though the government wouldn't give them a permit to camp there. So the government went to court and got an injunction to kick them off, but the vets wouldn't move, which set up this really fascinating confrontation. And in the end, the White House backed down, which became a huge event and big win for the movement and for the vets and really ended up starting to turn public opinion in favor of the protests. The ceremony, they sort of ended their time in Washington. They were there for several days with this amazing ceremony where they tossed their medals and their ribbons onto the steps of the U.S. Capitol. Probably the most emotional moment of the whole spring offensive. It was very effective. It very unnerved the Nixon White House very much. Just this idea that the warriors who'd been on the ground in Vietnam were so disillusioned with the conflict and America's role that they would go so far as to throw back their medals in shame and anger. That was the first, they were the first group and the first people to take action in this series of protests. And kind of in the following days or weeks, what sort of groups came after them? Were they as effective as the Vietnam veterans or was it more effective, would you think? Right after the Vietnam vets did their thing, there was this massive coalition march in D.C. And it, was, it turned out to be the largest march ever in Washington up to that point. 400 or 500,000 people showed up. It was under the auspices of some of these coalition groups I talked about before, but really almost every aspect of the peace movement, all the way from teachers and church members to the yippies, all came to town. It was much broader than the some of the previous anti-war marches because it included a lot of middle-class mainstream people, not just students and lefties. And it was really quite an amazing march. So that happened right after the vets. Then when they left town, when that large group left town, the most militant of the anti-war movement stayed behind. And over the next week or so, they held actions all over the city. There were people doing pray-ins in the park across from the White House. People were holding protests inside congressmen's offices on Capitol Hill. They blockaded different government buildings. They blocked the Selective Service, which was the agency running the military draft. And this was going on day after day after day. Washington had never seen anything like this. And all of this was leading up to the May Day protests, which happened on May, which was supposed to happen on the morning of May 3rd, Monday morning at rush hour. The idea was that thousands of people would block all the streets and bridges coming into the city, tie up traffic under the slogan, if the government won't stop the war, we'll stop the government. And generally speaking, what was kind of the strategy of the protesters? I know you described some of the stuff they did. Was there any other strategies that they tried to do in order to kind of get their point across? All of the things added up to this sort of overarching strategy, which was to demonstrate to the government and to the public that the protest movement was much too big to ignore, that they had to come to terms with a concrete way to stop the war. Nixon was saying, we're only going to stop the war when we're sure that South Vietnam can remain an independent country and refused to give a deadline for withdrawing American troops. And the movement was there to say, no, we need an endpoint. We need withdrawal. The war is not only unwinnable, but immoral. And now is the time. And 
on the kind of opposite side, what was the strategy of the federal government and the Nixon administration to try and stop or contain these protests? As I say, Nixon had this vision for remaking the world and putting himself in an exalted place in American history. And this protest was a political threat to that strategy and to his campaign. So he wanted his aides to minimize the impact of the protests by keeping the crowd estimates low. But in particular, he did not want to have the May Day folks successful in shutting down the city, which could be seen as too big a victory for the movement. So that's what they were strategizing to do. How can we undermine their plans? How can we make sure that they aren't in the streets all day? How can we make sure the perception of the protest is not one that is successful? And generally, how did the media and journalists approach the coverage of the protesters? And what was their perceptions of the protests? And how did their writing kind of reflect what was going on? Yeah, it was varied because the media wasn't monolithic about it. But overall, there was a fair amount of support for the idea of the anti-war movement in the press prior to the spring offensive. The notion that the war was a failure was pretty, had taken hold pretty deeply throughout the country and particularly in the media, which covered it. So there was a general sense that expressing dissent was a, the right thing to do. In the early part of the spring offensive, particularly the Vietnam vets and the, and the big march through the city, I think the coverage is quite positive. But when it came to the plan to blockade the city, to do this massive civil disobedience where, where people are coming in and saying, we're going to break the law, even though it's mainly just traffic obstruction laws. But still, the coverage before and during the event was not overall positive. There were some exceptions. But for the most part, the idea was, why is this one wing of the movement doing something so militant that might sort of undermine basic American opinion that it already is moving in the right direction? Basically, the liberals were saying, don't screw it up. We've already turned public opinion against the war by doing this kind of thing. You're creating images and changing perceptions in a way that might bring negative publicity to the movement. Again, you see the same kind of dynamic playing out today with the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And what was kind of the perception within Congress? Did the parties have different takes on the protests or were there specific senators or representatives that were supportive of the protests? There were a fair amount of anti-war members of Congress. We had William Fulbright in the Senate, Philip Hart in the Senate. Philip Hart, who was, uh, I believe, was a Michigan Democrat, invited the um, Vietnam vets to his house for a cocktail party while they were, you know, all camped out on the mall. So there was a lot of receptive audience audiences within Congress because there was this fairly large faction of peace supporters in Congress at the time, wanting to end the war in a fairly quick way. And the same thing, I think, prevailed through the big march. There were a lot of Democratic politicians, maybe even some Republicans, I don't know, who were generally supportive of the parade and march through the city in the middle of the spring offensive. But the blockade, again, was a very divisive tactic. And almost everyone in Congress either opposed it or were too politically worried to show that they might be sympathetic. There were a few representatives who'd been elected to Congress in 1970, the year before, as a sort of anti-war candidates. One of them was Bella Abzug of New York. Another was Ron Dellums from the Bay Area. They were very supportive of all of the spring offensive, including the May Day blockade. 
but they were the exceptions. For the most part, you're asking people in Congress to essentially say, I'm supporting people who are going to break a law. And that was not something that most people would step up to do. Now, after the protests, when we get into that, there was some difference of opinion in Congress about what to do about it. And one thing that you focused on in your book was kind of the group of lawyers that were trying to defend the protesters. What was their role during the protests and how did they go about trying to defend the protesters? Yeah, well, let me set that up for you a little bit. So as I say, the last audacious act of this spring offensive was the blockade of the city. You had about 12,000 people on Monday morning, May 3rd, coming out and sitting down or linking arms or trying to block traffic around the city. The response of the Nixon administration and the police were answered to the Nixon White House was to conduct these mass arrests and basically launch a dragnet through the city to just pick up anyone who either was demonstrating or looked like they might be a demonstrator. And by the end of the day on Monday, there were 7,000 people in custody by the cops. And first, they stuffed everybody into all the jail cells in the city, cells that were meant for two people held 15 or 20. And then when those were all filled up, they filled up the jail yards. And then when that was all filled up, they had to put thousands of people in this sort of makeshift outdoor detention camp out by the football stadium. And so reports of this started to filter out. And these lawyers that you mentioned were part of the DC Public Defender Service, which was at the time the largest public defender service of its kind in the country. And they were led by a very courageous young woman, 31 years old, named Barbara Bowman. Later, her name was Barbara Babcock, but at the time it was Barbara Bowman. And they knew that there would be a lot of action in court because of all these arrests they've been hearing about. Nobody knew where everybody was. They weren't being brought to court. There's tear gas everywhere in the city from this dragnet. But where are the, all the detainees? Where are these thousands of people? So she sends off some of her lawyer, hotshot young lawyers rode motorcycles. So she sends off, Barbara Bowman sends off these public defenders on motorcycles going throughout the city, trying to find where everybody is. And they stumble across this big outdoor detention camp. And they immediately realize that these arrests were clearly unconstitutional. The dragnet was clearly unconstitutional. So they go to court and start this days-long fight to get all the prisoners released. And how did the protests eventually end? Was it due to these kind of mass arrests that were conducted or was it just simply the passage of time? Well, the mass arrests certainly ended the protests. I mean, they were successful. They put everybody behind bars and they kept people from access to lawyers or to their families on the outside. So no one really knew the extent of the arrests and the illegal nature of them until much later. So it looked from the outside to many as though it worked out pretty well. The people said they were going to stop traffic in the city. The police cleared things up and there was no action. So it looked as though it was a successful ending for the president because these people were locked up. The protests, which went on for a couple of days, in the end, there were a total of 12,000 people arrested in these mass arrests, which is the biggest, was the biggest in U.S. history and remains so. But as a tactic, the mass arrests were successful in shutting it down, yes. And were the majority of those arrested eventually released without being charged, or were there people that were sent to jail at any point as a result of this? 
Virtually every single one of the 12,000 arrests were later declared illegal and unconstitutional by the courts. Everybody was freed. Almost no one was convicted in any trial. And not only that, but as the years went on, there were lots of lawsuits, civil liberties lawsuits about this. And ultimately, the courts not only ruled that the actions of the police and the government were unconstitutional, but that the government had to pay millions of dollars in compensation to those who had been illegally detained. And to kind of ask some concluding questions, did the spring offensive in 1971 sort of raise the paranoia level in the White House and set the stage for the eventual Watergate scandal? Absolutely. I would say my biggest finding in the book was that Nixon and his men kind of used that season of dissent secretly as a lab for the schemes that they would soon direct against their political enemies in the 72 campaign, which at the time it was suspected, but was never really proven. And it was really the first cover-up by the White House. They used illegal wiretaps. They played dirty tricks. They infiltrated the ranks of the protesters. They learned how to ignore the rule of law with impunity. And this mindset, as the book shows, and as you reference, led directly to their efforts, which were weeks after the protests, to undermine Daniel Ellsberg, who was the leaker of the Pentagon Papers. They sent operatives to break into the office of the psychiatrist to steal his records and hopefully discredit him. That did not work. But the, some of the same people who broke into that office were used to break into the Watergate and bug that. And we know how that turned out for Nixon. And overall, what do you think the legacy of the protests are? I think the protests brought out the worst instincts of the Nixon administration and thus left, led to its downfall. And I also think it's a little bit of a lost legacy, but a real one, that mass acts of nonviolent protests can sometimes be very effective at social change. And do you kind of see parallels between the protest movement in the 1960s and kind of the one going on right now? There are definitely parallels. Every once in a while, the nation seems to be racing headlong down the wrong track and a simmering movement kind of flares up. And that's what we're going through now, just like what happened in the 60s. And the other thing is that it's happening at a time when you've got an embattled president fighting for re-election. So some of the parallels are quite striking. And my final question is, do you see kind of similarities between Nixon's approach to this idea of law and order and Trump's and the way he's kind of trying to handle the protests? Do you see parallels between the way the administrations are trying to sort of combat this unrest? Absolutely. In 1968, when Nixon was running for president, he very effectively used some extreme images of 1960s protest in his TV ads and such. He kind of twisted some of the peaceful protests into looking like they were scary and violent. You know, you see these menacingly lit people holding up the peace sign, you know, looking really scary when you know they were just holding up the peace sign. And during May Day, the White House tapes show Nixon was actually very disappointed that there weren't more violent acts that he could use in this campaign. He tells his aides that. Isn't there something else we can find in there? So today we're already seeing the Republicans splicing some of the most violent scenes from these Black Lives Matter protests into campaign ads. There's one big difference now, of course, which is that people now have little media cameras in their hands, and it's harder to misrepresent something that is being taped and recorded by lots of different people than it was back then. And Nixon was very good at stirring up fears 
that the country was out of control and though only he could quell it, only he could bring law and order and quell the violence. And what I don't know, what none of us know yet, is whether voters today are going to be as easily swayed. So we just had that interview with Lawrence Roberts. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I mean, I think the 71 protests were unique because, again, it was, I think, the culmination of years of kind of anger and frustration over the Vietnam War, over civil rights, over, I think, the assassinations of different political figures ranging from JFK to Martin Luther King. And again, as Mr. Roberts mentioned, the kind of expansion of the war in Vietnam and the Cambodia and uh, Laos, despite maybe their strategic goals to try and win the war, it only, I think, created anger back home. Again, it was the culmination, and I think there's a really good part in Ken Burns' documentary, I think it's episode eight or nine, I want to say, where they talk specifically about the protests. And again, you can kind of see the veterans throwing their medals over the fence. You can see videos of protesters trying to stop traffic, all of that. So again, I think there are a lot of parallels between the movement going on now and what happened during the 60s. And again, I think the outcomes of some of those things are in question. I mean, obviously, Vietnam eventually ended. Most U.S. troops have been pulled out by 1972. And again, we eventually just left in 1975 when South Vietnam fell. There was the Civil Rights Act. There was the Voting Rights Act. That, But again, I think it was in 2013 that the Supreme Court pretty much gutted it. So you almost have to do it over again. So what these protests do, what changes come with it, well, you can only guess really. So, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see 20, 30, 40 years from now when we can look back on this era in particular and what historians are going to say about what went on. I think the nice thing about now is we have that luxury of time where we can look back on the 60s and 70s with a different perspective, especially with people looking at these events who didn't really experience them from themselves. So they're not necessarily unbiased, but I think they're about as unbiased as they possibly can be because they weren't necessarily there. So they can't really have an opinion that I think a lot of the older generations that lived through it have about Vietnam and that era in particular. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I like doing this because it's outside military history, so it's a little bit different. I mean, I think there are just a lot of parallels that you can draw between what happened back then and now. And again, a goal of this podcast is always try and draw lessons and show the similarities between what happened in the past and what's going on now. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll definitely be coming out with some more good episodes in the coming weeks. So I encourage you to read more about you know the 60s in general and hope you learned some things about this era in particular. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again. 